Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Key Ingredient Podcast. As many of you are aware, I regularly interview some of America's top entrepreneurs on this show to learn really what drives their success. Well, my guest today is not an entrepreneur in the narrow sense of the word, but she is very much an entrepreneur and innovator inside the world's largest global wealth management firm, UBS. Today, I'm joined by Paula Polito, who is a vice chairperson of Wealth Management Americas at UBS Wealth Management. Paula is also one of the most influential women in finance. Paula has enjoyed a very long and successful career in wealth management, and I'm very excited to not only share her story and her journey of success, but also to discuss some of the financial issues that may be on some of your minds. I hope you enjoy today's segment of the Key Ingredient Podcast, and thanks for listening. Hello, Paula Polito. Thank you for joining me today on the Key Ingredient Podcast. Really excited to have you on today. Well, first, Stefan, thank you for asking me to be part of your podcast series. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be with you, and you and your team are constantly recognized in the top rankings since our state and, and nationally uh, top rankings in our industry. And I have to say, you do a remarkable job with your media appearances and your podcasts, and I just think they're very relevant for our clients and for investors out there. So I just want to say thank you for all that you do. Well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. I am looking forward to the conversation today, Paula, because you've had an absolutely amazing career. And a lot of your career has been around education, which I find fascinating, educating women, educating investors in general. You have done so much of that. But before we even go into your career accomplishments, can you do me a favor, Paula, and just tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself and your background, kind of where you grew up and how you grew up? Sure. Well, I suppose we should start from the beginning. I grew up in a working class town in Pennsylvania, sort of very typical, tight Italian family, lots of relatives. I have to tell you, I had wonderful parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and everyone lived just a few miles from each other. So a pretty fantastic childhood. Very, very blessed. But my father and mother were part of the greatest generation. They experienced the Depression, and my dad served in World War II. And my mom was sort of like Rosie the Riveter, operating big machines that made parachutes during the war. So I guess I definitely have a deep appreciation for what they and my grandparents experienced back then. My dad was a local businessman, and my love for business and learning how to deal with customers, clients really came from him. But, you know, it wasn't easy for my dad to start a business. And when my dad first returned home from serving his country, he got a job pressing clothes in a factory. And shortly thereafter, he married my mom and they had my brother. And needless to say, it was extremely difficult to make ends meet. So, there was a story my father would often tell about what made him have the drive and the ambition to start his own company. And he told the story that my brother asked my dad for an ice cream cone and my dad reached into his pocket and only had a dime and he couldn't afford the ice cream for my brother. And I think that very minute, my father vowed that this would never happen again because he would never be in a situation that he couldn't provide for us. So the disappointment that my brother felt was the catalyst for my dad to succeed. And my father owned and operated a small steel company for almost 50 years. And when I was 16, he wanted me to work with him and learn basic skills. So when I look back, that experience was definitely very valuable for, for my formidable years. 
So what did so what did you do with the company? So I'm I'm curious to see not only what you did and what were some of the lessons that you learned from working there. Well, when I was 16, my father said, "I, I think you need to to come in and and to learn basic skills." So I answered the phone. I learned different parts of of the steel company. I learned what an I beam was. I learned what a column was. I learned what a rebar was. I learned ways to different different cuts on the different steel. I learned how to make sure the orders were there on time and that they were marked appropriately. I would have to go out to the plant and ask, you know, somebody to stop one job and do this as a rush order. And so it was all the things. It was being polite. It was being courteous. It was being on time. It was just, it was learning basic business skills. And I think my father thought that that was something that I should learn. So he kind of threw me in there and said, you know, figure it out. But Boy, what a blessing to be able to have a father who gave you the confidence to be able to, to do that. And over a period of time, my father said, why don't you take over the company? And I really didn't want to pursue that path, but he gave me the courage and, and the know-how to do it for sure. Interesting. So you didn't want to go that path. You were about 16. You were learning some great lessons. What At that age, what, what, what were you aspiring to do? I and mean, what did you think you wanted to do long-term for your career? Well... I always wanted to be in television news. So I knew when I was kind of a a teenager, I really wanted to leave the small town of Pennsylvania and go to a big school. So I wanted to go to a big college. I knew that. And so I went to Boston College. And one of the things that I did, I pursued an internship. And I, I always tell every young person I talk to, please get an internship. It's the one thing that will be the, the bridge from your college to the real world, get an internship. And I was very lucky to get an internship at one of the local TV stations in Boston. And that's sort of how I followed my dream and into journalism, which is one of my first careers. Interesting. So I didn't know that about you. And I don't think a lot of people do, Paula. So when you started that career, so out of college, did you start working in, in the TV industry? Is that how that worked? Or? Yeah. So, you know, my career clearly hasn't been a classic Wall Street story, certainly not coming out of a bank analyst program or getting an MBA. I started out literally as a gopher in television news in Boston. And it was a great time to be in TV news, especially local news. So my first 10 years, I started as a gopher and I was the uh, managing editor after 10 years. So I worked my way up in my 20s. I worked extremely hard. I worked overnights. I worked weekends. I worked the night shift. And eventually I got the coveted day shift. But in my 20s, I sacrificed a lot to be in that industry. And it was so exciting because I never knew what the what would happen in any day. And when you're in the news business, you know, you never know what's going to happen. You can't anticipate. You can to a certain degree. But it was rock and roll time. And that was what made it fun and what made it interesting and what made it compelling and what made it unique. And we had a we had a fabulous group of people who worked in the newsroom at the time. And we all sort of bonded together and 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 had to make three, four, five deadlines every day. And so, you know, we we there were no excuses. You had at six oh 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 one, you had to be ready. You were going on TV. So it was collaborative. It was fun. It was exhausting. Uh, it was fulfilling, and it was exciting. And that's how I started my career. Interesting. So, so what happened next? What brought you over to wealth management? How did that happen? 
Well, after the 10 years in, in television news, I moved on to advertising and I learned the art of, of marketing and advertising. And at the time I worked at this really significant large ad agency in Boston and we were pitching Fidelity Investments and Fidelity didn't hire the agency but they had asked me to come and talk to them about a potential marketing role. When I first got to Fidelity, I ran corporate marketing. I didn't know anything about financial services at the time. I mean, I knew sort of basic things about it, but I didn't know anything about products and services. And then they asked me to run the retail marketing. And when that happened, I had no choice but to learn the brokerage industry, the retirement industry, and all of that. So I became a very quick study and I worked very hard to learn almost every product and service and understand the business. So that was kind of how I made my transition into wealth management, into Fidelity. And then from there, I went to Merrill Lynch and then from there, UBS. So it's been over 40 years of nonstop working and it's been a delightful career. And I'm so I'm so pleased to be able to have the opportunity to work in this industry for almost 30 of those 40 years. That's amazing. So one of the things I always try to identify here, Paula, is there's always a key ingredient or, or something that happens in our career that really causes us to make a pivot. And, and in your case, it was uh, it was moving over fidelity. But I, I guess I want to understand that the psyche behind what was happening. So here you were in the newsroom. You were doing something you really thought you wanted to do. What did they do to entice you to leave? That must have been a very difficult decision. Well, it wasn't just enticing. It was you can look, you look at yourself in the mirror and you sort of say, I think I'm tapped out. I think I want to try something new. I want to be innovative in a different way. And I've always been somebody who wanted to take a risk. You know, there were ways that I could have achieved more in the newsroom, but I didn't, I chose not to because I, I sort of said, you know what, I've, I've been there. I've done that. I need to challenge myself in a different way. And every single time that I've made a change in my career or in my role, I knew it was time. That was an indicator for me. That was always the catalyst for me to change. I knew it was time. Interesting. So you ended up holding executive positions at Fidelity, executive positions at Merrill Lynch, obviously an executive position here at UBS. Why not? You've seen a lot change, I'm sure, in the industry, as have, have I. I started in the 90s and uh what are some, I guess, the evolution of the business? What are some of the changes that you've seen that you think are worth noting? Oh, well, you know, there's so many and you know it and I know it, but I think the first thing that I want to highlight in terms of change is sort of this whole notion of wealth management. And sometimes wealth management isn't necessarily clearly understood. And depending on who you ask, you can get different answers some people think it's just investment. Some people think it's asset allocation. But wealth management, the way you and I define it, it's really about a holistic view of your entire financial life. And investments are part of it and products are part of it. But, you know, I think the benefit that we can bring to clients is that somebody needs to really oversee everything in their life, their retirement their expenses, their investments, their philanthropy, their legacy, their real estate holdings, their liabilities, their insurances, tax opportunities. So I think having that holistic view of somebody's financial life 
that's the advice that we can bring as an industry. And that's what really defines wealth management. I mean, yeah. Stefan, I mean, you're in this business every single day with clients. I mean, you know, the benefit of, of providing that advice to them versus just investment advice. You're exactly right. I mean, I've seen a huge evolution since the 90s when I started in the business and I started back at Payne Weber, the predecessor to UBS. And back then, you know, a lot of people were more in the stock business, right? And you're right, it has evolved quite a bit. I mean, for our practice, as you know, we have a fairly large team here at the firm. We spend most of our time on the planning side. I mean, everything for us starts with a plan. It's amazing to me how many people focus so much on investments. And we all know how important investments are as part of the entire wealth management approach. But when it comes to financial planning, to me, it's huge because you need to know where you want to go and come up with a plan to get there. And I think it's starting to uh, starting to take on a life of its own in the business, but it's still amazing to me. And you, you and I have spoken about this before. How many people really don't focus on having a plan? For us, it starts with taking a look at a client's assets, their liabilities, and mm -hmm. really determining everything that they want to do. I mean, we live, you know, you're down here in Naples. We live in an area where you've mentioned to me where people are going through transitions, right? And I'd love for you to speak about that in a little bit, but transitions in their lives. And when you go through transitions in your life, you, there are certain things you need to account for and you need to know where you want to go. So what we essentially do, as you know, is we work backwards. We determine what the client wants to achieve. And then we back things in to figure out what do they need to do to make that happen. You mentioned asset allocation. How do we determine the exact mix of stocks, bonds, and cash and, mm -hmm. and, and drill it down even further to make sure that clients are going on a certain path that they want, but that they're also hopefully doing it with the least amount of risk possible as well. But if you don't mind expanding just a little bit, because again, I know you've mentioned this to me and we both agree that we are in an area down here in Naples, which you're spending the majority of your time now yeah. where people are going through transitions. I'm sure you're happy not having to travel on a plane as much as you did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for sure. But you know, I have to tell you, getting back to sort of how things evolved. I mean, you remember when it used to be, you know, 3,000 mutual funds, and that's what we wanted to market to our clients. Oh, we have 3,000 mutual funds. Look at the supermarket shelf full of stuff. And then, you know, in the 90s, it was sort of, you know, pick your own stocks. And, you know, the tech stocks were going through the roof, and people were at cocktail parties talking about what tech stocks to buy. And and then it was sort of these complex products came into vogue and it was, you know, people were buying them because they thought that was what they should be doing and they had no idea how complex these products were. And, and so, so much confusion and so much, I think, change and evolution and regulations have, have been, you know, making our industry so much more complex. And that's why I think our advisors, somebody like yourself really needs to, A, you need to know all that. You need to sort the confusion out for our clients. You need, you need to make it easy for them to understand what they own and why they own it. And then most importantly, you're like a life architect. You've got to put together all of the changes that happen and, and getting back and coming full circle. When people make a change and come to, to Naples or come to Southern Florida, they really are having a life event that causes them to be far more reflective and thinking about their financial needs, their financial life, what they want to accomplish, what legacy they want to live, how they want to preserve their wealth, how they want to spend their money while they're, you know, well enough to spend their money. They think about health care. So if I always say, if you don't have an advisor who's going to be having those conversations with you, run, 
run like the hills, run to the hills, because there's plenty of people out there who should be having these conversations with our clients. You're exactly right about that. And education is obviously a, a, a big part of it. You know, psychologically as well, you and I both know we're, when we're sitting down with clients that it's not always like we said about picking those mutual funds that you mentioned, but psychologically, people tend to do the opposite of what they should be doing. And exactly. that, that, that's a large part, obviously, of what we do. I say I'm a, a little bit of a psychiatrist to some degree or a therapist because mm-hmm. uh, it really is having people understand money, what money could do for them and not making bad decisions when it comes to it. You, you've been for many years now a very strong advocate when it comes to women and investing. And yeah. I know that, that you really pioneered that not only at UBS, but throughout the entire industry. Paula, why do you see such an important need for women to get involved in their finances? Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I got involved in this and how I feel so passionate about it. But I just want to take a step back here. And and the things I'm going to say, I, I don't mean to generalize, but as long as I can remember being in this business in the early days, it was men talking to men and not all women, but many women were not really engaged in the dialogue. And I even can recall in the 60s and 70s, my father was part of a mutual fund club and they would come and they would gather around a table. And I, at first I thought they were playing poker, but then I realized they were talking some other language I didn't know. And they were discussing investing with each other and, and mutual funds. And that was back in the 60s and 70s. And I never saw my mother at that table talking about money. And I, and I didn't understand why it was just men having conversations with other men about money. And when I got to Florida, when I got to this area, I would spend time with women of means. I would ask them if they were engaged. And many women said they didn't want to talk about money. Uh, They didn't know anything about investments. They had no idea. They just completely gave that to their husband to do. It was too hard, too complicated. My husband does that, that stuff. And then more and more women, obviously, we all know that more women are inheriting money. Women are living longer than their husbands. Uh, There's clearly lots of widows. There's an increase in gray divorce. And so eight out of 10 women at some point in their lives will wind up solely responsible for their money. And 50% of all women today abdicate their financial well-being to their spouse. That's way too many in, in my mind, because I've talked to so many widows and divorcees who have incredible regrets. And they say, If I just would have listened to someone, if I just would have learned more, I wish I had it to do over again. And I was hoping by now, Stefan, honestly, with everything that's happened for women and advocacy and equality and the Me Too movement and all the other things, we would see more progress with women, particularly millennials. And unfortunately, we don't see as much movement with women being engaged in their financial well-being than we should. It's still about 50%. And again, I think that for me, I think that women really need to take it upon themselves to engage. And so I think that the research, uh, you know, we, we, we surveyed 
thousands and thousands of women and ask them why. Why do you continue to abdicate? What is it that is holding you back? So here's what women said. A lot of women say, look, I'm engaged in short-term decisions, and this is true. So more than 50% say, look, I, I balance the checkbook. I know my credit cards. I know what's going on there. So from a short-term perspective in terms of financial oversight, they are very engaged. But when it comes to things like investing or retirement or insurances, this is where we see women not as engaged. We also see that the 50% of women who are not engaged, they transcend age, generations, urban, suburban, education levels, career achievements. There are many hugely successful women who abdicate to their spouse. So again, I think that there is so much to be done here. Women need to, I think, lean in. I don't think women, I think we, we as an industry sometimes complicate it. I also think that there are plenty of men who want their wives involved. And then there's some men who don't want their wives involved. So I think women need to sort that out in their relationship as well. But the one thing I can say is that at some point, they will have to be responsible for the money in their, in their household. And they really need to know, be a part of the conversations, meet with the advisors. Under, they don't have to understand everything, but they need to understand enough to be able to say, I understand what I own. I understand how I'm going to be taken care of. I have a financial plan. I feel good about my future. It's, it's amazing to me that the numbers are not getting better with the younger generation. I think that would pr really surprise a lot of people. If I remember off the top of my head from reading a lot of these surveys that we do, as you said, millennial women are not as involved. Actually, the numbers are declining. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, that's true. That's true. And you know, it's interesting because millennial women, when they are single, okay, they actually are, are more engaged. They're very involved. And they say they want to continue to be involved. But when they get married, the whole thing happens again. The cycle happens. They have children. They get busy. They've got careers. And when it comes to money, they don't make that nearly as a priority as they do other things. And therefore, the cycle returns. So we're trying to make sure that millennial women stay committed to their true selves who say, look, I, I am going to do this. I am going to be an equal participant. We're not asking women to do more. We're just asking them to be equal participants in their financial well-being, because then there's no surprises. Then there's no heartache. Then there's no financial issues in the long run. So that's really the message to all the women that are out there listening. That that's still that is amazing to me. I mean, I could tell you throughout my career. I mean, I've seen I've definitely seen a change. I mean, I'm seeing women getting more involved. But but I would I would agree with those statistics. It doesn't seem like it's improving enough. One of the things our team does is we always focus on trying to make sure that both both the husband and wife are both present during the meetings. But it doesn't always happen that way. I mean, we have some clients, of course, that just the husband shows up and on occasion, and it's it's rare will have the the female actually lead the conversation. But that that is rare. But at a minimum, what I'm hearing here is women should at least be attending these meetings with their financial advisor. Oh, sure. Because it, they don't have to get into every detail of every stock and every asset allocation. But if you're having a conversation about your life goals 
every woman is interested in their family. Every woman is interested in how they're going to be taken care of if, God forbid, something happens. Every woman wants to understand, you know, am I going to outlive my money? Do we have enough? And so that conversation is really the conversations that have to be had. You know, the, the, the products, the services, all of that stuff, that's a means to an end. But that's why I think this notion of sitting down and doing the right planning, Stefan, as you and your team do, that's, that's the piece that at least all women can feel comfortable with and should feel comfortable with and understand what their financial plan looks like. Because as you and I know, we've been able to diagnose financial plans in a very simple way. There's three aspects to it. The first thing is your liquidity. It's understanding how much do I owe? How much do I spend? And we always tell every single client, whether a billionaire or have $100,000, make sure you understand what you are spending and what you have out, out, out there for leverage. What does that look like? Because that could be your biggest risk. Some people don't spend enough and some people spend too much. And that's clearly really important, especially being down here in this in this area. It's very easy. Oh, I get an assessment here. I've got this expense. I got that expense. And my 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 kids asking for me for money. I need that. So you need to really really understand your expenses and and hold that there. And then the next piece is your longevity. Nobody wants to outlive their money. And believe me, women really need to think about the fact that they could outlive their spouse by. 10 years on average, potentially. Nobody wants to outlive their money. And there are a lot of people, as we all know, are living to be 100, 105, and, and it, it'll be in, in, incremental. So people, somebody who's 60, I don't know how long they're going to live, but they're going to have to be prepared for that. And then the last piece is someone's legacy. What do they want to leave behind? What do they want to leave for their children? What do they want to leave to their charities? Do they want to give while living? And what does that piece of their portfolio look like? And sometimes I tell people, maybe that's where you can take more risk because that's the money that you have for the very, very long term. So again, it's very simple, liquidity, longevity, and legacy. And that, that dynamic, everybody should know. And not only that, what's important for that, that's their life plan, but it also protects them from all the market gyrations. So you mentioned before, you know, so many people do the opposite they don't stay in the market when they should. They pull back. If you have a plan, you're going to feel pretty good about where you are. And even if the market takes a hit here and there, you know you're going to be fine. Because if you follow that plan, you will be fine. That's exactly right. That 3L approach you mentioned, the liquidity, longevity, and legacy is, as you know, something we use quite a bit in our practice. And it's enormous. I mean, it's enormous for clients, not only, like you said, when it comes to financial planning, but even now, I mean, right now we're, we're, as we're speaking, markets are at or near all time highs. And, you know, there are a lot of people out there sitting on a lot of cash, wondering what they should do, seeing inflation starting to rise and mm -hmm. trying to figure out what's the best way to approach this market. And we do that a lot. So for us, the liquidity, that first bucket that you mentioned, we generally put, and it depends on the situation, but anywhere from two to five years worth of income needs for our clients. And, that is just a great way for them to take the income from that account. They don't have to worry on, in the short term about what the markets are doing and the volatility. It kind of takes that away quite a bit and the concern quite a bit. Then, then kind of that middle bucket, the longevity, that really mirrors the plan. That mirrors the long-term approach of, 
as you know, of how our clients should be investing their money for the remainder of their lives. And, sure. and the legacy, as you mentioned, not only is it to leave heirs if, if they choose to do so, or if they're charitably inclined, but, but also where they might want to get aggressive. So I think what you just outlined is a really great approach. And for anybody who's a little bit even concerned about the markets in general, I think it's just a great way to go. Oh, I think that's, I think that's right. And I think that's right. And I, I just hope that more women step into that because that is not a complex, that's not something that you don't have to have competence. You can have a lot of confidence and know your financial plan. And again, I think like, we're not talking jargon, we're talking logic, we're, we're talking very simple concepts. So finan- fi- holistic wealth management isn't that difficult. And that's one of the messages we want to get out to more people. Yeah, I agree with you. And like you, I mean, I, you know, when it comes to women in investing, I mean, I do a lot of speaking when it comes to that topic. And uh, it does amaze me. I mean, every time I read what, what you write about these surveys and, you know, not to, to be too hung up on that, but it amazes me that it's not getting better. And you've referred to this as the cycle, right? Trying to break this cycle from an education point of view. I just, I just love to have these kind of conversations because I want women to hear this over and over again and understand just how important it is to take an active role. In our practice, I could tell you without doing any kind of a, a formal survey, you know, when I think of the clients I've had over the last 20 plus years, most of the time it mm-hmm. ends up being the, the wife who ends up meeting with me in the room when the husband passes before them. So, so important. And people ask, you know, how do I choose a, a, to work with a financial advisor, a financial advisory firm? I always say there are really two things to look at. And you tell me what your thoughts are, please. But first is, is the firm and the resources available? right? Mm-hmm. You want to work with a firm that has the breadth and depth of resources available for you to be able to accomplish the things that you want to accomplish. But mm-hmm. the second part, of course, is going to come down to the relationship with the advisor you have. And are you comfortable with the person that you're working with? Would you agree with that? Is there anything else you'd like to add to that? No, I think, look, money is so personal and every single financial plan is different. You have to have a trusted advisor. If you don't have a trusted advisor, then you're never going to feel comfortable with your money. You're just, you're just not. And so you're right. It's for me, the most important thing is to have an advisor that you can trust, who's going to oversee your financial plan, who's going to have complete transparency, and who's going to be basically on the same side of the table as you are, which means that somebody who cares about you, somebody who wants to make sure that you're, you're fine, you're successful, and that you're going to do what's right for that client. And if you don't have somebody like that, then you should make the change immediately. I agree with you. Paul, let's shift over to uh, COVID just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's changed everything that we do. But in regards to this conversation with women and investing in general, from what I've read, it seems like when COVID first, first occurred, genders kind of went to the more traditional roles. Women, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, everybody was working from home, children were home, women ended up taking the role of taking care of the children and balancing working as well. And then the husbands kind of took over to finances. Is that right? I mean, did did the trend, did things, I guess, get worse with the cycle during COVID? Or do you think it's going to start getting better at some point in the near future? Well, look, I think the one thing that COVID has done, it's changed our lives in many, many ways. And, and you know, and I know that when people say, well, can't wait when things to go back to normal, we all know what the answer is. It's not going to go back to normal because there is no more normal. The impact that COVID has had on our lives, the way we live, the way we interact, the way we work, the way kids are schooled, all of that has now evolved. 
And we always kind of knew that things were going to evolve. I don't think any of us knew it would happen this quickly and how much technology has now become such a part of our lives every single day. With that said, there's some very traditional things that actually went backwards. So when you think about six in 10 women say that COVID affected their careers in a negative way, more women took on household chores than their spouses. They took on more homeschooling. Many of them took on more housework. Many of them dropped out of the workforce. So you have a lot of women sort of taking on more traditional roles because they had to. And the other thing that, that I find interesting is many conversations happened with couples during this period. The, they, they went through a whole reevaluation. Where should we live? What about our health care? What about my parents? What about our finances? What if somebody loses their job? What if one of us gets sick? So I think a lot of self-reflecting went on during COVID for everyone, but particularly families, young families, and they're making different decisions as a result of that. I do think the need for advice is becoming or has become more important for people that are in the stages of now accumulating more wealth. I think many of the people here in Southwest Florida are preserving their wealth, they're retirees, but many, many people are actually coming here that are still working. So I think the fact that more, more younger people are looking for advice and are looking for answers, I think is extremely important for our industry to make sure that we deliver advice, not just to those people who have retired and who have some means, but people, uh, couples that are going through this transition and have young families and trying to kind of figure out how they need to evolve in the next, you know, 10, 20 years. I agree. I think that's well said. How has COVID impacted your life? I mean, I know you've spent so many years on an airplane flying back and forth uh, all over the, the country. I mean, how have things changed for you during COVID? Well, one of the things is, is that for me, the living really in the state of Florida was something I always had a home here. I always has a re had a residence here. But as you know, I was on an airplane around the globe or back and forth up the East Coast or someplace in the United States. So I was always on an airplane. And to me, Naples was a place that was my weekend place. It was the place I'd come home to my husband. It was a place that I would find solace in. It was my home. But when COVID happened, then every single day I was with my husband. So I didn't have to travel anymore. I could do everything I wanted to do on Zoom. And I worked out of my home. So in some ways for me, it was an enormous change, but it was a blessing as well. And not everybody finds a blessing in COVID. Some people do, some people don't. I think I was lucky in the sense that I didn't have to be in an airplane. I didn't have to go back and forth every week or travel somewhere. So traveling ceased, getting to really enjoy and, and be at, at my home was a real blessing for me. So I got to cook dinner, I got to work, I got to play a little golf. I, I got to enjoy the beach and I really got to call Naples my home. Well, speaking of golf, on a side note, you're a pretty good golfer. Can I ask what your handicap is? No, because it really went up. No, I, it's, uh, <laughs> I know you're a great golfer though, but no, okay, no. we'll leave, we'll leave that to another segment. That's okay. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not 
I'm not entirely focused on my game these days. Um, I wish I were, but I'm not. I promised myself I'd go out and and at least go to the driving range a couple t- times a week, and I've not been very successful at that. So I got to get better at that. But yeah, uh, I enjoy it. I love it, and I love it, and I love to be with clients, and I love to play golf with people, and it's it's just fun. It's just it's a lot of fun. Sure. Well, now that you're spending more time down here, what are some of the things, I guess you, you've been coming down here for a long period of time, but yes. what would you say Naples, what makes Naples a little more distinct and unique from some of the other kind of markets that you've seen? Well, I started, I, we, we purchased our first home here in the nineties. So I've been here for a little while and I've seen Naples evolve since, well, since the, I've, I've been coming here since the mid eighties, but we f- purchased our first home in the mid nineties. And so I've seen a lot of evolution. I certainly haven't seen what some of the old timers tell me about what Naples used to be like, but boy, I have seen a transformation certainly in the past, you know, 25 years or so. Being here and being in Naples and being a part of the community and my husband having a business, it's just like any other place, except I know now that, you know, Naples is really in any, I shouldn't say just Naples, I should say all parts of Florida is going through, I think, a state of reinvention. We see the population increasing every single day. We hear about real estate in some markets at an all-time high. We know this is a very tax-friendly state. We know that the state is well run. We've got good weather here. We've got paradise to some degree in terms of what it's like to be here with the Gulf and the weather and the, the Gulf, I should say Gulf of Mexico and, and all of those things, it makes it just, just a great place to be. I think that since COVID more and more people have come down here. They want to start a new life. They are going through a transition and they're just looking for a change. People that have gotten divorced have decided to come down here and change their life, or they're relocating their business here, or they recently sold the business. But I do think it's very transformative. I do think that, th- that there's so many people coming here, and I think this is an exploding market. So I think all of Florida is one of these places where you're seeing a great deal of movement, great deal of expansion. And I will say that many of the wealth that's coming here, and there's a lot, a lot of wealth that's coming into this area, I think people are extremely charitable. And many of the people that I know, philanthropy is really a full-time job for them. So they are giving, as much as you know, we think people are taking from this great state of Florida, I think there's many people who are contributing greatly to this area with their pocketbooks and their time and their energy. And so that makes me feel pretty good about being in this area. I would agree with you. A lot of people down here do give back to the community, and that's uh, that's a huge thing. You listen, you give back as well. I mean, you're known throughout the industry, throughout UBS. I mean, you're you're a mentor to so many young professionals. Um, being a mentor is obviously a choice, right? Not everybody wants to take on that role. Not anybody desires. Not everybody desires to take on that role. I guess, Paula, why why have you felt the need to 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 be a mentor? Why do you do it? Why do you like to give back? And what advice really do you have for some of the younger professionals out there? Well, I guess as you get more senior in your career, you start to think about your legacy and what you've contributed and what you want to be known for. And I feel like I have contributed to building the businesses over my career 
making companies more profitable, more strong. But at the end of the day, it's all about the people. It's all, it's always all about the people that work in a company. I think making sure that you can give back and mentor people. I've always believed, and I have a plaque in my office that I truly think that it's one of my core tenets. I always think that the task of a leader is to get their people from where they are to where they have not been. And sometimes seeing things in people that they don't see in themselves and being able to give people the confidence to take risks, to start that new job, to do more, to take on more roles. I think that that's extremely important for all of us to make sure as we mentor people that we just don't tell people what to do, but we walk side by side with them, that we encourage them, and then we give them the strength and support to do more. Again, it's always all about the people and it's be about leading them. It's about mentoring them. It's about showing them the way. And you have to set a good example. If you don't show up in the office and you don't work hard and you don't be the last one that turns out the light at night, then people are not going to really believe that you're really walking the walk and talking the talk. And so I've never been afraid to roll up my sleeves, to work harder than anybody else on the team, not more, but just as much as, and then really helping people achieve their dreams. Well, Paul, listen, I want to thank you for your time today. I know you're extremely busy, and uh, and I want to personally also thank you, not only for being on The Key Ingredient, but for everything that you do for the advisors out in the field. I mean, literally, your work is just so important to what we're trying to do and convey to our clients, and I just want to thank you for everything that you've done for us. Well, you know, it's my pleasure, and if we don't have great financial advisors, then we don't have a great firm. Because everything we do, everything that we do is really about our financial advisors being on the front lines with our clients every single day. And if I can be a little wind underneath your sails, then I feel pretty good about what I've accomplished today. So Stefan, I really wish you and your team the best. There's a huge need for advisors like you out there in our community. I see it every single day. I I do hope that people take advantage of your expertise, your team's expertise, your know-how, your experience, and I wish you all the best. Well, thank you for the kind words. I wish you all the best as well, Paul. We'd love to have you back on um, in the very near future again, and thanks for everything that you do. Great. Thanks, Stephanie. Have a great day. Okay, take care of yourself. Thanks. You as well. Bye-bye. 